Welcome to another edition of Editing Aloud with a collection of South Africa's best journalists in the room with me. Guys, welcome to today's edition. And um, can we start perhaps with, with Gweta Mantasha, who was speaking at the mining in Daba? Um, Juanita, you've obviously heard the, the stories of what he wanted. I mean, it sounded very positive on the one side, allowing companies to basically create their own power supply. Mm. On the other hand, he also talked about creating another state-owned enterprise, another sort of murky entity to also create power. How is that, I mean, how is that, those two dichotomies going to work? Eskom 2.0, right? Eskom 2.0, <laughs> yeah. Because the first one worked out so well. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I mean, it's quite interesting. Uh, obviously, um, Gwede Matashi was speaking in the back of the cabinet Lekotla and the, on the back of the ANC Lekotla. And obviously, his statements uh, caught many by surprise. But then, uh, yesterday, I saw um, that a, a, a document that was submitted to the cabinet Lekotla was, was leaked. Um, and, and, and have a, a you know, Peru, the, the article that was written about that leaked document about state enterprises, it I kind of understood where he was coming from in that this new thinking of rationalizing some uh, uh, SOEs, uh, doing away with some, selling some, and then just merging a whole lot together. And then in that discussion was, was this creation of this ESCOM 2.0, if you like, also, the discussion about merging, uh, you know, uh, central energy fund having a, 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 a state-owned gas and 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 pipe oil and gas company of sorts. So, so, so there's this elaborate ideas to try to find a way um, uh, around the common elephant in the room, and that is that the economy is in a terrible state, and that government has really been doing nothing for, for, for a very long time, and now there's this hysteria to try to come up with new ideas, in trying to reignite the economy, um, and then, you know, some, some people may, 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 may deem it to be a little bit bizarre now that there's this frantic effort hmm. to, to come up with, with all of these different uh, entities. Julieta, um, just talking about that, and we have Petro SA, which has created monumental epic losses for, for the Fiscus. And the Central Energy Fund. And the Central Energy Fund. So do we need another state-owned enterprise in energy? I mean, No, you need exactly the opposites. I mean, you talk about this frenetic energy to get something done. In fact, I'm not sure if it was that frantic. Um, and, and one of the criticisms made of Guido Mantashe's address was, it's once again incredibly vague. Mm. You know, you, you, you mouth the platitudes that people m might want to hear. Are we going to maybe create a sort of a, a new ESCOM, encourage IPPs to come into the grid? But no timeframes are given. No actual plans are set out. So it's all indicative. It's all what we want to do, what we think we should do, or maybe what we want you to hear that mm. we're going to do. But there's no actual plans have been given and and i think that's that's reprehensible given uh, where we are now i mean yeah you know central energy fund or petro sa i remember in the first round of blackout in 2008 the central energy fund back then made a commitment to invest in solar powered traffic lights they were going to do this whole um in uh, your yeah, investment into technologies that would help offset load shedding and then of course money was stolen from them they collapsed into a heap as tends to be the case um but Gwede Montashi, i get the impression cannot cannot divorce the idea of the state being centre to the economy. Um, and, and I think that is unfortunately why we are in the situation we are today. Natasha, I mean, that's, that's a really good point. It seems like from the statements he made that fundamentally we talk of now splitting off ESCOM and potentially selling bits to the, to the private sector, that the ANC just doesn't trust business, that they have this, still this, this centrist um, approach to the economy that we can't let anything go. Sure, we have to. We might be forced to do certain things with ESCOM, but don't worry, we'll still have 
we'll still have our hand on the, t on the, on the, on the rudder through this new entity. Is that, is that the way the ANC thinks about this? Definitely. If you look at the ANC's approach to SAA, um, the most recent, you know, the, the most recent ANC Lakhotla and the discussions around whether whether or not um, a, uh, the SAA should be, you know, let go of. Um, even in the, the the discussion document which Kanita is referring to, um, there's no uh, indication that SAA or any parts of it, um, you know, would be completely let go of. So, so yes, the ANC does feel, you know, st state-owned entities are a central part of the ANC's economic plan and development plan, and. Um, you know, the, the the cynic in me would say that it's it's also uh, there are also avenues for the largesse and the and the, mm. and the looting that we saw over yeah. the last decade. So certainly <coughs> part of the radical economic transformation um, campaign exactly. as well. And ironically, it was those you know that side of the ANC that was arguing in favour of retaining SAA, even though it's widely seen as a vanity project. Mm. Mm. Is it? I mean, this this notion of letting the private sector create its own electricity. It's, it's a good idea. It's obviously way too late at this stage. I mean, do you think that it can make a dent at this particular juncture in, in the energy crisis we have? Um, it, judging by how f slow government actually moves on anything, implementing this is probably going to take an, a couple of years. Five years. <laughs> yeah, it, it, took, it took the government so long to put together an integrated resource plan. Um, I would rather uh, put my hope in what ESCOM is trying to do, as um, described by the new CEO last Friday, you know, where they're really trying to buckle down, um, make sure that maintenance is getting done, make sure that, um, you know, they, that they can bring new, new uh, users on board, uh, producers on board. I, I would put my hope in that rather than the government moving with speed on any, any of the promises they made this week. Julieta, just one thing on Andre Dorator. He gave a press conference last week, his first public press conference. He seemed quite impressive, right? I mean, he, he didn't shy away from the issues they have. Mm. No, indeed. And he's been making himself publicly available. He was uh, well, uh, he was our cover story for the Financial Mail a couple of weeks ago. He was on BDTV last week. Um, I, I think he's telling it honestly as it is, although I, I still get the impression that he's quite constrained. You know, he says the shareholder has set out uh, parameters for how he must go about fixing ESCOM, and that includes no forced retrenchments, which is one of the biggest issues that has mm. been raised time and time again. So he has to work within what the shareholder wants him to do. But I think he's quite... Honest, and I think, um, inconvenient and dreadful as it is, the load shedding that uh, is being implemented now—it's—it's it's probably it should have been done a long time ago. Stage two load shedding—you have permanent load shedding so that they can uh, fix and maintain the plants, bring new uh, and sort out the issues bedeviling Kosili and Mudupi. Um, and I, I do feel. Um, Generally, it doesn't always happen, uh, especially when you've got um, aging infrastructure from city power and the likes. Um, but that businesses and individuals can plan around it, a, a, you know, a rigorous load shedding schedule. If you know it's going to be stage two for the next two years, well, you'll work around that. Um, and I think that's might, if, if that's the case, it might not be as detrimental to the economy um, as it has been um, this last year, although I know the CSIR came out with a report talking about how bad 2019 was and how it's probably only likely to get worse. But I'm weirdly enough optimistic that we can, that business will start planning around um, uh, the knowledge that we're going to have stage two load shedding for the foreseeable future. Uh, that's, that's, well, let's hope you're optimistic <laughs> in the place. To talk about another chaotic state and entity that has been um, a real subject for looters and and I think of a family that's in Dubai that had a good uh, primary role in that. Kunita, you interviewed the new CEO of Transnet last week. 
mm. um, who just happens to be Brian Malefa's ex-wife. And much was made of that fact. I mean, do you think that was, that was fair on her? I think, I mean, yes or no, no, because, you know, she, she has a track record that speaks for herself. Uh, she was a public servant um, in the Mbeki era, the whole director general of the Department of Public Enterprises. So, I mean, you know, we should separate that. But I do think that she raised an interesting um, issue, and that is, you know, possible conflict, where she says, um, you know, people might say that there's still ongoing investigations in Transnet, uh, which may or may not implicate, and we know, implicate Brian Malefe. And so she wants to sort of put herself at her arm's length, told the board, set up a team that deals with investigations so she doesn't have to deal with investigations. But more interestingly, she spoke about, so, so I mean, so, so, you know, she was obviously quite bold in saying that why, because his impunity is is in question, that her impunity has to be in question, and and, and I thought that was that her was integrity. her integrity. Sorry, has be, uh, was was I don't quite think powerful. Brian, Brian <laughs> <impunity> <laughs> <is in question>. <laughs> <laughs> we know, <laughs> but 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 I thought what was interesting when she spoke about two things, which was um, uh, shareholder. Uh, uh, um, sort of, uh, you know, coming in and, 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 and the, the influence, the, the shareholder, which is obviously the minister and government. Mm. And what she's saying is that she really sticks by the principle that if you want to give me an instruction, give it to me in writing. So that, so that kind of interference, I think, is something that she, she was on the other side. She was in, in public enterprises before. So she, she kind of knows how to anticipate this thing. And I think that will be um, an important thing to watch. How much does she allow uh, uh, government interference in, in, in Transnet? And the second thing is, um, you know, her, her saying that, that uh, you know, the, 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 the rail business is, is a big part of, of, of Transnet. It's 80% of its um, of its um, revenue, yes, yeah. and so and so, you know, it has to be sustained. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. She's obviously optimistic, um, and and I think that what we can do really, because I mean, we've we've seen we've seen the bottom of the barrel, just mm. to give her the benefit of the doubt, really. Um, but I hope it's not a case of you know. Uh, of, of us giving her a benefit of the doubt only on what she says and nothing on what she does. Um, and I think that it, you know, the jury's out on, on, on whether she's able to, to really turn around um, uh, Transnet. Mm. Talking of her ex-husband, um, the public protector, Tuli Marancella, former public protector, had much to say about him. Tuli Marancella's successor, Busta Siwem Kobani, has been the subject of, of much, many headlines this week. Uh, Ramaphosa himself um, is fighting her in court, mm. um, and, he, and he said this week that she did, just doesn't know anything about money laundering. Mm. How, how do you think this is going to play out? And the ANC seems to be on the fence regarding the public protection, whether to remove her. Yeah, so, so I think the, the court case is interesting, particularly because the president is backed by the Speaker of the National Assembly, he's backed up by uh, the National Director of Public Prosecution, the Financial Intelligence Center, and the Information Regulator. Coming to the defense of Mkwabane is the EFF, and as they fight out um, what Mkwabane calls technicalities, the president's argument you know, is many, but the main crux of it is she did not have the jurisdiction to investigate uh, the finances of an internal party political campaign. And that's what's being trashed out in court now about, um, and then they go on to detail how she got basic facts of the, of the, of the law wrong, how she misquoted, um, you know, sections uh, of, of the Constitution, for example, how she read, uh, how she had this material flaws in her Busasa report. So all of this really, you know, 
meeting in court um, yesterday and today. But the important thing is the, 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 the shadow of, of, of the ANC in the removal of, of Mkwebani. We saw on Friday last week um, a fervent supporter of, of former President Jacob Zuma Supramahoma Pello saying outside court that they do not think the ANC uh, that she's doing a marvelous job and the ANC doesn't will not remove her. But then he says he was speaking in his personal capacity, not on behalf of the ANC. A whole MP saying this outside of court. The ANC then issues a statement on Sunday saying what's what Supramahoma Pello said was is not the views of the ANC. The ANC is yet to decide on the matter. Then the public protector starts fighting with the Speaker of the National Assembly, Tandi Mudisi, where, she, where he, she says the rules that have been put in place to stop the process to remove her are unconstitutional. And then on Sunday, Tandi Mudisi says, well, actually they are. So, so, so all of this is kind of still, you know, it, it, it's going to be a process to remove her. It's going to be a fight. And I don't think that the ANC caucus uh, has the firm line of which side they're going to take. One of the biggest events you had this week has been the impact of the coronavirus which has devastated world markets emerging from China and had a big impact on emerging markets such as South Africa. Julieta Talevi, to start with you, um, the coronavirus has, has, been, has been devastating for, for emerging markets in general, yeah? Yes, yes and no. Um, it, it certainly has affected um, currencies such as ours. Um, when there's a flight to quality or flight to safe haven assets, um, the RAND is not considered a safe haven asset, so it will um, uh, get hurt unduly in, in that flight to things like you the So the RAND is not considered a safe haven asset. I, I know, it's incredible. It. I, it's so, it sounds so disloyal, doesn't it? <laughs> but um, unfortunately, it's also one of the most um, liquid and tradable currencies in the world, which is why we tend to have these wild swings in our currency when there is some risk-off event, which is uh, the coronavirus sort of encapsulates perfectly. But I picked up a really fascinating article in the FT today, and it talked about the national team in China, um, Chinese markets on Monday, they, they lost 8%, yeah, right? And, but that is also because they were closed. Um, there, there was an extended Lunar New Year holiday and the Chinese markets were closed for that period and closed for longer than is normal. So there was always that pent-up selling, a little bit like what happened on Tonga's share price when it reopened after months of suspension. So that pent-up selling, that's why it looked so extreme and that's why it did drag world markets down. And then, of course, on Tuesday, world markets rallied again, including our own. But the FT talks about this national team, the cavalry in China, uh, big insurers that actually are prepped and ready to come in and support markets. They had about $14.3 billion in their arsenal. If if um, things should go really pear-shaped, uh, and we saw in 2015 Chinese stock markets cracked, um, they were there to come in and support and buy Chinese stocks. So, you know, the hand of the Chinese government is everywhere, and it's in stock markets too, which is quite fascinating. And maybe is why you haven't seen maybe a, a worse sell-off um, in Chinese markets and therefore emerging markets at large. The coronavirus itself. Um, Catherine, you, you, you've written a lot on health. Do you feel that there is much to fear in terms of the coronavirus, um, firstly being particularly pernicious, as people expect, and then spreading to Africa and South Africa specifically? Look, I think they're expecting it in South Africa. They're expecting it in Africa. Um, it's looking more and more likely that they can't control it in China. And Today, there have been more cases announced in Singapore and Malaysia that are coming from people already infected. They're not coming from people who've gone to China. So it will come here. If you as an individual were unlucky to get it, you have about a 99% chance of surviving it. So as an individual, you don't really need to panic. It's got about a 2% fatality rate. 
But because they think there's so many undetected cases, it, that fatality rate is overestimated. So it, it's probably around 1% or less. So unless you're old or sick or suffering from uncontrolled TB or diabetes, you're not going to die of it. But yes, it, it will come to Africa because it seems more and more likely that it's spreading around the world and it'll become like flu, like a pandemic. But I mean, Natasha, we've had these global viruses come here before and, and create some, something of a disastrous impact, given the fact that our health system is in such chaos, the public health system. Um, do you think we have the ability to withstand uh, more chaos in our, in our health sector? You've recently visited a public hospital, <laughs> you know how disastrous it is. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 don't think, I don't think our health, um, our public health sector is, is equipped. Um, I mean, Catherine would, would probably know, um, you know, b b know, it, know the area better, but um, from what I've seen, setting up a, a call center um, is, hardly, is hardly going to, um, you know, really thwart um, any, any potential outbreak. And, and also, what about our big airports? Our, uh, you know, I, I don't see much being done in the airports. I mean, people are reporting that um, you know, they, they're coming in and out unchecked through, the, through our customs. Um, on, on social media, so so that that concerns me. So, Catherine, do you think overall? I mean, not much to fear then. So, first of all, there are a lot of misconceptions. Um, temperature Mostly screening. Mostly in this room, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere, especially on Twitter. <laughs> thanks to Musi Mamani. Um, temperature screening is automatic. It was set up very widely during Ebola because it was in Congo, and there was there was fears it would come here. So, people who are saying they're going through flats and they're not screened. When they wait at pa passport control, it's an infrared system, and they are screened. That said, the estimate now is that they would pick up 20% of actual cases of coronavirus with temperature screening and miss 80, because people control fever with pills or they're not yet sick. Um, the call center is not a call center. It's an, it looks like one. It's an emergency operations center. It's a standard practice to put protocol in place so that we know which hospitals will have patients, how they would be transported, who would be in charge, and also to run a 24-hour hotline. So if a pharmacist at an all-night pharmacy gets a case, and he thinks, jeepers, this person's been to China and they're coughing, he can get advice at 2 in the morning about what to do. And that's why it's so important to have that call center so that no case, they're not waiting till 8 in the morning and that person is spreading the disease. Um, and this would be a government-run call center? No, no, no. This is run by the NICD. The oh, very people who discovered Listeria when people like Tiger Brands had not disclosed that they knew it was in the factory. And that was through the same kind of contact tracing where they contacted every person who'd been ill and did a food history survey and worked out what was the main culprit before the tests. So these people are world class. They often help in Ebola with the, the outbreaks in the Congo and they trace all the measles outbreaks, they trace all the rabies outbreaks. They know what they're doing. They've tested to date 71 samples from across Africa for the virus. It's really important to detect it when it gets here to the continent. Um, they've all been negative. So they're ready. Whether a, a state hospital could have a sustained outbreak and 200 cases of people needing ventilators, that can't happen. But State hospitals have good isolation facilities and they've chosen the best to isolate a few patients. I can't imagine a scenario in which government would ever run a call centre and at three in the morning you'd call there and they'd say, we have a high call volume and can't answer. That's how I anticipate it would go. It <laughs> it's not go. government, it's the National Institute of <laughs> Communicable Diseases who, let's look at government, haven't given them money for this. So, but the NICD is world class and they're considered world class. So WHO asked them, will you please do tests for Africa? 
So it's not quite like a Zuma run hotline that he had <laughs> that didn't work. The, this is run by epidemiologists whose phone are on 24 hours a day. Um, they may even be at home because people go home, but they, they have phones. Maybe we should try, try that Zuma hotline again and see if he's around. <laughs> Is that see if he's feeling ill. How are you doing? How are you doing, Jacob? The, the Zuma hotline, I mean, Zuma's the one who himself did get a medical certificate this week to avoid <laughs> testifying in, his, in the, going to his criminal trial. How did that work out for him? Uh, not very well, unfortunately. Um, Mr. Zuma's medical certificate was found to be shocking. Actually, it was not it from the NICD. Two, no, no, obviously, it it had it was from the military hospital. It had two alterations to the date, which is which is a very critical part with no signature on it, um, and it it actually looked like a prescription or. A, um, administrative release form from a, from the military hospital. So naturally, the judge was very skeptical um, in in the in the matter at the Peter Maritzburg High Court, and issued a warrant of arrest for Mr. Zuma. Um, uh, but that was stayed until his next appearance on May sixth. So so effectively, um, there is a warrant of arrest out for Mr. Zuma, and should he fail to appear in court on May the sixth, he will be arrested. I have to say here, it's clear that Jacob Zuma didn't go to high school because anyone who went to high school would have cribbed a sick note perfectly, you would have put a lot of effort into it, right? So, I mean, Zuma hasn't, I mean, he's dodged the Zondo Commission as well, and that's also been part of the issue is that the, the credibility of the State Capture Commission rests on the fact that, you know, the man at the centre of it does testify, right? I mean, isn't it important that he does go and testify completely to Zondo? It is important, uh, we, and he, he has testified once and he's had what he and it was abysmal. had his say. It was abysmal and it was um, you know and his legal team literally pulled him um, as soon as questioning became too difficult for him to to answer or you know he couldn't he was literally put in a, into a corner. So so it is important for the credibility of of the process that he be given every opportunity possible. But he has been given every opportunity possible and it is up to Mr. Zuma to t take those opportunities. And if he doesn't do so, then tough tickets. Um, you know there will be a finding and he will be responsible for not appearing when he'd been invited so many times. Um, our cover for Financial Mail this week is about also about the Zondo Commission and the role of the private sector in facilitating a lot of the deals for the Guptas, essentially being the laundromat that allowed funds to come from Transnet, to come from Eskom and get recycled out to Dubai and places like that. Um, Julieta, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, does the private sector, do these companies, do the banks like HSBC and Standard Bank have much to answer for? They clearly do. Um, uh, I think one of the examples mentioned in this article, and I felt a bit like a corporate apologist in when we were talking about our editorials, talking about the story before it was published, but um, saying that it, it feels like it would be a slap in the taxpayer face to go after the private sector first before um, arresting or charging any of the state players um, with the, with state capture um, but I mean there was there were some shocking examples of negligence really on behalf of the financial institutions in South Africa Standard Bank doesn't come off very well neither does F&B HSBC as you mentioned which uh, was flagged by Peter Hayne uh, a few years ago but uh, for example Mercantile Bank a small little bank in South Africa flagged suspicious transactions which it thought were uh, examples of money laundering to the Financial Intelligence Center um, very quickly, it was very proactive. It's a little bank, uh, you know, definitely not one of the top four or five. Now, if they could do that, 
why couldn't Standard Bank or First National Bank, which saw hundreds of, million, of millions of rands pass through dormant accounts that then suddenly sprang into action, take so long to actually crack down on these accounts? And um, I'm, I'm afraid to say they do come off looking really bad, and I think it's really good um, that, uh, that we've actually put out this report because uh, state capture or corruption, um, as we've seen in the Angolan case, it's facilitated by private players, by lawyers, mm. by consultants, by banks. Um, you know, so there's got to be, there are two parties to how a, a nation gets robbed um, of its wealth. Natasha, that's a good point. As a last, as a last point for the show, um, you've written a lot about Bain Capital being one of them. This group, this non-profit, um, Open Secrets, has now lodged the submission with the Zondo Commission asking that Zondo um, subpoenas these, these eight companies and ask them to answer specific questions in terms of accountability. Do you think that'll happen? Do you think that'll provide greater illumination on the subject? Um, Zondo has already, he's already had some of the banks in, he's already had some of the consultants in, but I definitely think he needs to uh, subpoena more of them. Um, Bain had vowed that it will appear and that it will submit to the Zondo Commission um, after the Nugent inquiry last uh, two years ago, but it has not done so yet. So I definitely think that uh, the Zondo Commission would, uh, is going to go that route. I, um, he indicated as much even in our interview with the, with the Financial Mail at the end of last year. Great guys well thanks a lot for joining us this week and join us again next week for some more illuminating discussions on the issues of the week.